Welch minister Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, what accounts for most of our failures in Christian living is our failure to realize what we are. It is our failure to realize what God has done to us, what has happened to us. Of all the things that people struggle with uh, internally, and we all do, of course, of all those things we, we wrestle with inside of ourselves, you will often find at the root of a significant portion, at least, of those struggles, there lies an identity crisis. A lot of people who struggle with things like depression and, and self-hatred, narcissism, a host of other internal battles, they either do not understand or have not been willing to accept the person that God created them to be. They believe things about themselves that are not true while refusing to believe what is true about themselves, which can and often does have a profound effect on how those people decide to live their lives what they end up achieving or not achieving in life. Because, uh, look, when you, when you spend your time and energy and focus constantly feeding a false identity, it becomes impossible to live the life of purpose you were created to live. Okay? You, you cannot become all that God created you to be until you accept the person He created you to be. You have to own who you are in Christ, and yet this world is full of people uh, who believe in the truth about Jesus while believing in a lie about themselves. Right? Maybe, maybe because uh, it's because of past mistakes or, uh, or maybe a hurt they've experienced or failures they've had. Maybe it's, maybe it's something someone else said about them. And so they actually assume a false identity and consequently miss out on the life that God has planned for them, which is nothing uh, new, by the way, in the first century Mediterranean world, the Jewish people generally regarded the Gentile people as unclean. And because of the Jewish purity laws, they really had very little to do with the Gentiles when it came to their religious belief and practices. And at the same time, they understood themselves to be God's chosen people, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation as described in Exodus 19.6 by God himself to Moses on Mount Sinai in reference to the Israelites. So as far as the Jews were concerned, the Gentiles might claim to be many things, but when it came to being God's people, when it came to being a priesthood, holy and set apart, when it, when it came to, be the, to being the chosen people of God, listen, the Israelites had it on good authority that that status was reserved for the Jews alone, not the Gentiles. And most everyone understood that, or at least believed that, at least until a little more than halfway through the first century when the Apostle Peter, a Jew, writes a letter to predominantly Gentile Christians in the northern parts of Asia Minor, quoting Exodus 19, not as a description of the Jewish people, but as a description of all followers of Christ, including those who were Gentiles and Jews alike. So Peter says to these Gentile believers, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. First Peter 2, 9 and 10. In that one statement, Peter redefines the very identity of a whole lot of people. And I'm just telling you, we don't really have a, a cultural context in this society today to compare this to, to fully really appreciate the gravity 
of what Peter was saying here and the repercussions of what it meant to all people who would follow Christ, including those who were non-Jewish, that they had now become the chosen people of God. And of course, it wasn't because of anything they had done. They had no reason to boast about their new identity in Christ because it was all, it was all his doing, right? Not, not theirs. And even though we may not be able to put ourselves in their shoes culturally, we can certainly identify with those first century Gentile Christians spiritually because for all of us who follow Christ today, we've experienced the very same transformation, right? From being not a people to now being God's People, from being unclean to being made clean, from being unacceptable to being accepted. And like those early Gentiles, we cannot claim this new identity, this new status by any merit of our own, because like them, we have been chosen by God alone, and we've been redeemed by the work of Christ alone. Now, probably most Christians today would say, I understand all of that. We know that we belong to God because we've been chosen by God, which means we can now claim the status God's people, which is true, and that's wonderful. The question is, is that it? Is that all there is to it? I'm now a child of God. I'm a member of his family. I am one of the chosen ones, which means I'll go to heaven and live forever. I can eat whatever I want every day and never gain any weight. It's going to be great. No more tears, no more pain, no more death, right? The whole package. I am saved. I walked the aisle. I said the prayer. I joined the church. I'm a Christian. That is my new status, which is actually uh, profoundly important that we understand that. But does that mean I can now go on about my business, living my life largely for myself as a good moral Christian person? I vote for the right people. I listen to the right music. I say the right things. I, I hang out with other Christians because that's what you do when you have the status, the, the Christian status. Because, of course, a lot of people are culturally Christian, right? They do all of the things we associate with people who claim the, the status of Christian, and actually there's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. Uh, we're supposed to be set apart by God for God. So, so understand, I'm not knocking lifestyles that honor God. I actually commend that. But what I'm asking is, is that all there is to this new identity? Is that all we were chosen for, to be good moral people, to be culturally Christian, to say the right things, to go to the right places, to hang out with the right people, to listen to the right music, and then one day we get to go to heaven. Is that what we were chosen for? Is that it? Well, I don't, I don't personally believe so. We have been chosen, but chosen for what? Because our identity in Christ, listen, it's about far more than just having a new status. When Peter told the Gentile believers about being chosen, he also told them what they were chosen for. He said, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. For what? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. That sounds like we were actually chosen for a purpose, which is deeply important because it's one thing to say that I belong to God, that I've been chosen by Him, that I've been redeemed by Him, and that may all be true and very important, but for what purpose, right? Have you ever stopped to ask God, God, why did you choose me? 
What have I been chosen for? Because I'm telling you, you've not been chosen simply for some kind of status. No, you've been chosen for a purpose. And if that's true, then you have a really big decision to make. Will the rest of my natural life revolve around a status or a purpose? Because those are two very different things. Living for status and nothing more will cause you to live your life doing things for yourself and often feeling like a failure. Living for a purpose will cause you to give your life away, doing things for others, which is tremendously fulfilling. It's the difference between status and purpose. We live in a culture chock full of people who are living for status of one variety or the other. And again, as Christians, our status as children of God couldn't be any more important than it is but you haven't been chosen just to be chosen. You haven't been chosen simply to call yourself a Christian. No, you've been chosen for a purpose, something bigger than yourself. Your life has a purpose far beyond serving yourself. And and once you find out what that purpose is and you embrace it, I'm telling you, you'll never be the same again, which is what Jesus was trying to get across to his disciples when he said, "You you didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, John 15, 16. In other words, I've chosen you for a purpose, which is a far riskier way to to live your life than simply saying I'm saved, right? I've chosen you for a purpose to spend the rest of your life doing things that abide, things that far outlive you, things that remain long after you've left this earth. That's a risky way to live. Far more risky than simply saying, I'm saved. I made it. I'm good. There's nothing really left for me to do other than to be morally and politically and socially conservative. Right? And yet, as silly as that sounds, that's been the standard for much of the church in the West, at least for a long time now. But but if you want to discover your purpose, you have to be willing to live for more than just status. Right, You have to be willing to actually follow Christ no matter where that takes you, no matter what that looks like, no matter the risk. You weren't chosen for status. You were chosen for a purpose. And it's the, it's the only kind of life as Christians that we should ever want to live. It's God's people, a life of purpose. And if you're wondering what that looks like, we're going to find out in our story today as we work our way through this second chapter of the book of Joshua. Most likely next week, we're going to be starting a new sermon series working through 1 Samuel. Uh, but, but through a lot of prayer and consideration this past week, I felt impressed by the Holy Spirit to share this particular story with you again today. It's a chapter we actually tackled uh, in our Joshua sermon series about three years or so ago. But again, in praying about what to preach this week, I was led back to this story in Joshua. It's a story, uh, an unbelievable story about a woman named Rahab, perhaps, uh, perhaps the most unlikely heroine in the fabled history of God's people, a woman who, despite her sordid past, discovers her true purpose in life and goes after it with such conviction that she ends up risking her own life and her own family. And as yet we'll see, that was exactly the life she was chosen for which becomes increasingly obvious as the story unfolds. And yet it's more than just her story because it speaks volumes about just exactly what it means to be truly chosen by God still today, regardless of what lies you may be believing about yourself and your life. So let's turn there together to Joshua chapter 2 
And we'll begin with the first two verses. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So at this point in the story of God's people, the Israelites had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years under Moses' leadership. And Moses has now died. And so God commissions Joshua, Moses' apprentice, as the new leader of the people of Israel. And he tells Joshua to prepare the people to cross the river Jordan to finally take possession of the land that has been promised to them. And yet he was also clear with Joshua numerous times in the first chapter of the book that they would have to be strong and courageous on their conquest because taking possession of the land, the land, by the way, that he promised them would be theirs. So it's going to happen. But, but he says you're going to have to be strong and courageous on that conquest, right? You're going to have to actually fight for what I've promised to give you. In other words, it's not going to be easy or effortless for you to realize your purpose and what I've promised you in your life just because you're my people, right? It's still going to require great faith, strength, and courage. And so Joshua, in preparation for taking the promised land, sends two spies to gather intelligence about the land there to take possession of, and especially the city of Jericho, because it was the most heavily fortified city in the promised land, and would be their first point of attack. And so when the spies get to Jericho, they enter the house of a prostitute named Rahab, not to commit uh, immorality, but to commit espionage. You see, in antiquity, a prostitute's house was frequented mostly by soldiers, which meant if you were seeking information about the military in a particular city, the best source of that information, second only to the military headquarters themselves, was the local brothel. And yet, uh, why Rahab's house? Why this particular house, right? Surely there were many other prostitutes in the city. Well, there's a 20-volume historical work called Antiquities of the Jews, written by a first-century Jewish historian named Flavius Josephus, who tells us in that writing that Rahab was also an innkeeper. In other words, her house was more than just a brothel. It was also used as a roadside inn. And so for the spies whose mission was to enter the city undetected. Remember, Joshua says he sent two men secretly as spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So this was meant to be a covert mission, which then makes perfect sense that they would go to a roadside inn, which happened to be owned and operated by a prostitute, because there they could find lodging and also potentially useful information about the military there. So it was a seemingly brilliant move on the spies' part, except for the fact that the very first part of their mission was singularly unsuccessful. In fact, it was a complete failure. These were spies on a secret mission to covertly enter the city unnoticed. And yet no sooner had they arrived at Rahab's house that Joshua tells us it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Well done, fellas. Good job. Right? They, they totally blew it. They totally botched the mission up to this point, and it wasn't looking good for them as the king and his men were on to them and were also on their way to them. Let's see what happens next, verses 3 through 7. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, 
Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So the king sends his men to Rahab's house straight away to capture the spies, and Rahab is faced with a choice. She can turn the spies in, and this woman who was at the very bottom of the barrel in stature in her community, she's a prostitute running a business out of her own house. She would instantly gain status among her people and her king as a hero if she turns these men over to the authorities. But that's not what she does because Rahab is discovering, as we'll see, her purpose in this world. She senses in that moment when a profound decision must be made, she senses something greater than status standing before her. She's beginning to realize her purpose in this life. And so she decides in that moment to pursue her purpose wherever that may end up leading her. You see, God chosen, had chosen Rahab not just to come to faith, right? Although, as, as we'll see, that is certainly a part of it, but he chose her for a purpose that was bigger than just herself, okay? On their own, the spies failed to remain undetected, but God chose Rahab to provide protection for his people. So she, she hid the spies. And the fact that she had stalks of flax stacked on a roof and scarlet cord, which... Uh, we'll read about in a moment, it's pretty clear indication that she also manufactured dyed linen. Okay, linen is actually an organic material made from the dried fibers of flax plants. And so the more we learn about this woman, the more remarkable of a person she appears to be. She's obviously highly intelligent. Uh, she's capable. She's a quick thinking woman. She runs multiple businesses, although not all honorable, out of her house. And when the king's men come to collect the spies, she hides them in the flax that was stacked up for drying on the roof before it could be used for making linen. And then she makes up an impressive lie on the spot to convince the king's soldiers that the spies had left. By the way, there are people, even scholars, who have a hard time with the fact that Rahab lied to protect these spies. Well, first of all, she'd done far worse things in her lifetime than lying. And secondly, her lie to protect the innocent was not all that different from the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1 who refused to kill the male Hebrew babies ordered by Pharaoh. And then she, uh, they lied to Pharaoh about it. And yet the passage says that because of what they did, God dealt well with the midwives, Exodus 1.20. It's no different than the scores of men and women who hid the Jews in their homes in Nazi Germany in order to save them from extinction, and yet they lied to the German soldiers about the fact that they were harboring God's people in their houses, okay? The fact that Rahab lies to protect God's men should be no reason whatsoever to believe that she was doing anything other than fulfilling her God-given purpose in that moment because God chose her specifically to provide protection for his people. The truth is, uh, it's hard not to admire this woman. She was risking her own life by doing what she did. And again, she didn't have to. She could have turned them in and been considered a hero among her people. But Rahab chose purpose over status, which is the very same thing God is calling us to do today. 
even at times at great risk and great expense to ourselves, okay? As his church, as the body of Christ, we're supposed to look after one another. And there's no avoiding the fact that doing so will involve our time, our energy, our talent, our money, all to the exclusion at times of using all of those same things to serve ourselves. Is that risky? Well, you bet it is. Yeah, because you can expend your time and energy and talents and money serving others. And listen, never receive back from them what you've been given. Okay? There is, listen, there's always risk involved with loving other people. You hear me? There's always risk involved when you love other people. There are no exceptions. If you're going to truly love other people, you will always be doing so at great risk to yourself. But listen, you can, have, you can have great risk without great reward. That's true. But you cannot have great reward without great risk. Right? Living a life of purpose is risky. Always has been, always will be. And you won't always see an immediate return on your investment. But in the end, when you live the way that God created you to live, when you live for God's purposes in your life, you will be rewarded far beyond anything you've invested. Not to mention that all along the way, you will know what it is to live a life of purpose, which can be incredibly fulfilling in and of itself, which is also not something everyone can claim, not, not by a long shot. Right? How many people do we hear about who end their own lives? Right? People that were rich and famous, had everything they could ever want materially. Why? Because there's no fulfillment in using everything that God has given you to serve yourself. That never makes people truly happy. Or content. Never. No, the, the fulfillment that people are looking for only comes through Christ, right? By knowing Him and following Him. It's called living with purpose, which will involve great risk at times in our lives, but that's what living with purpose looks like, which was something Rahab was learning as she risked her own life to protect these men of God. Let's keep reading verses 8 through 14. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And so as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So the men were sent to secretly spy out the land, and not only did they immediately blow their cover, but their mission while they were there was to survey, to make an assessment of the land, especially Jericho, which turned out to be an abject failure as well. They hadn't gotten anywhere, right? In terms of their, their secret assignment before being identified, they hadn't checked out anything.